Okay. So you all have the handout now, which has the today's passage, which is verses 12 to 17. But I also included last week's passage above that, verses 5 to 11. So that we have context, at least the totality of what we're trying to address here. I'm going to start with reading the passage itself so that we all have at least gone through it one time. And by the way, while you're, while you're traveling, um, you can still keep up with this by going to the inner altar site. It's one of the beauty of the internet is that you can be anywhere in the world as long as you have Wi-Fi. You can actually uh, keep up with the class and it's it's, there's actually a number of people, thank you for those who are listening right now, who aren't even in this class, but are following it on a regular basis. And I will get notes periodically uh, from them in other parts of the country. It's really kind of interesting. I think we need to have someone turn the mute button on our video. Because I'm hearing noise from someone who's watching. So I don't know how we turn the mute button on our end, or it's on their end. Anyway, otherwise you're going to have two voices, and as long as they don't start making lunch. Uh, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so let's start with the passage. Chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of the, these, the wrath of God is, God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk for your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or, uncised, or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And then today's passage, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. <clears throat> and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, I wrote out a preamble of my thoughts before I start digging in. Verses 5 to 11, as you see them, is our vices. Verses 12 to 17 are virtues. 
That's an easy way to separate the two. Verses 5 to 11, you have sexual sins and relational sins. The second list, you know, anger, wrath, and malice, if you remember, I mentioned last week, these are the ones that we could call respectable sins. These are the ones we don't condemn very often. In fact, there's an entire book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. Where he goes into it and he said he caught his subtitle is called Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. And I thought it was interesting, just in this table of contents, you have ungodliness, anxiety and frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, and sins of the tongue. And we just go along with those because they're respectable. I thought that was interesting and yet I would say God doesn't treat one sin versus another. They both sully the soul and create a darkness in the soul. But if you look then at verses 12 to 17, you could almost look at them as counterweights to the sins. The virtues are counterweights to the sins. There are some, and I came across a few sermons, where they try to force the verses 12 to 17, these virtues, into a one-to-one relationship. And I'm not quite sure Paul meant them that way. Uh, For one thing, the numbers don't add up. Um, And that's a kind of a simplistic uh, dualism way of looking at sin. But as I meditated on these verses and began formulating my approach to teaching them, I was startled to realize that I could write and teach 12 to 15 separate lessons on verses 12 to 17. I mean, if you slowed this down and start looking at each individual word as a separate topic, you might realize, oh wait, I heard a lesson on that. Or I heard a sermon on that. And I went into my bookcases, which are legion in a demonic sense. Uh, But they are many, many books. And I realized, oh wow, I've got an entire book on one of these. And two or three on this one. And then I could toss that entire 12 to 15 week exercise under a big umbrella and call it holiness. How to live the Christian life. And then I walked to my shelf and found, oh wait, I have that book. (laughs) Called A Radical and Comprehensive Call to Holiness by Joel Beek and Michael Barrett that came out two years ago. And in this, you turn to page 173 and he spends five complete pages on just this passage. But then goes through the whole rest of scripture on the topic of holiness and what that looks like. So it's a little overwhelming to say, oh, let's, let's do this all in one hour. No problem. Well, the problem of surface teaching is you end up not teaching anything and it's not memorable and it has a chance of not sticking. So I decided while it would be great if I could get through all the topics today, I'm literally reading what I wrote. 
I decided to relax the intensity a little and determined to walk as far as we can. And if we don't finish, we have the luxury of picking it up next week and then uh, just simply merging the latter part of these verses into the next section because uh, there's nothing wrong with that. So let's dive in. We start with verse 12. Now, depending on your translation, the English gets a little messy because the Greek actually starts with the word what we translate here as then or therefore. In other words, there's a reason why I have verses 5 to 11 in your text in front of you because technically, Paul then says, you're looking at all this, Christ is all in all, therefore, put on these virtues. But the English mixes it up. So, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, hearts, etc. That's kind of how the, uh, I think the thrust and the intent of what Paul is saying because you have in the passage you have verse 5 put to death verse 8 you must put them away verse 10 put on the new self in other words this idea of clothing oneself taking off the old putting on the new is a consistent theme but before we get there, yeah, go ahead. What is that put on? What is that? Is it really the word put on or is this something Yes, it actually means to, like it's, uh, how to say here, to cover oneself or an envelope yourself completely. In other words, the tent that you carry in your backpack, build it and get inside it. You know, in other words, literally clothe yourself. <coughs> But it starts with an identity. This passage starts with an identity of who he's talking to. And who is he talking to? What does it say? God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. The word chosen ones is the Greek word electoi. For God's elect. To mean, uh, J.B. Phillips' translation, he translated as God's hand-picked representatives. It means to select, to call out, to choose those who are selected out of a larger number. And I realized that I forgot to bring my can of worms because I'm going to talk about election. Uh, for those of you who haven't been in the class before, but I actually have a can of worms and I bring it into the class whenever I'm ready to get into something that's a little more delicate and difficult. <coughs> and uh, he's actually not in the class today and I talked to him after the service because he's in my notes. I said, because election is such a difficult topic, instead of me teaching it, I elect Stephen Stutzman <laughs> to teach it. But since he's not here, um, Mary Gale, <laughs> come on up. <laughs> yeah, right. In other words, what did I just do? I elected 
I chose someone out of the group. And you might go, but I don't like that. Especially if you're the one chosen and not prepared. <laughs> the issue of election is, well, let's just say it's controversial and difficult to articulate. I mean, you have like Ephesians uh, 1 verses 4 and 5. It reads, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And if that has any sort of echo, that was read from the pulpit this morning. That verse, I'm sitting here going, Not again. <laughs> <laughs> this is just amazing. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, There seems to be an inveterate prejudice in the human mind against this doctrine of election. And although most other doctrines will be received by professing Christians, some with caution, others with pleasure, yet this one seems to be most frequently disregarded and discarded because it's too difficult to articulate. 2 Peter 1.10 Be all the more diligent to make sure your calling and election are sure. So what does that mean? Does that mean some people won the lottery and others just, you know, you know tough cookies, you know? You get to live in hell the rest of eternity. Too bad. It's not that capricious. Um, I have a handout. It's on page two of your, um, your handout, which is an article. <coughs> excuse me. I don't know why I'm coughing this morning. Um, the article is titled, How Do the Arminian and Calvinist View of Election Differ? You may not even know what that means in the headline, but notice the date. Yes. This article came out on Friday while I'm preparing for this lesson. And I'm looking at this going, okay. Isn't that interesting how God works things out? And here you have a professor of theology attempting to take the concept of of for, uh, foreknowledge of what did God know and when did he know it kind of thing and do it in less than a minute and a half. You can even type in the YouTube thing here and exactly what's written here, he speaks it. You know, it's good for them. They, they're able to articulate it really well. Um, some of these differences and you can look at it on your own. I'm not going to dig into it that far. But I do want to quote J. Vernon McGee on this. Good old J. Vernon McGee. I will try not to read it with his accent. Oh, please do. Please try. Yes. <laughs> there are certain things which I believe that to me are not contradictory, but they are certainly paradoxical. Election and free will happen to be one of those. In other words, they're not contradictory, they're just paradoxical. There's a theological argument rages today on election or free will, free will 
there are some people who put all their eggs in the basket of election, and there are others who put all their eggs in the basket of free will. I am not proposing to reconcile the two because I've discovered I can't. If you had met me the year that I entered seminary, or the year I graduated, I could have reconciled them for you. <laughs> I have never been as smart as I was in my first year or my last year in seminary. I knew it all then. I could reconcile election and free will, and it was a marvelous explanation. But now I have forgotten what it was. And actually, it was pretty silly if you want to know the truth. You can argue about divine election and free will all you want to, but it works. You cannot make it work out by arguing, but it sure works out in life. I thought, what a fascinating approach to this. It's almost like this is one of those impenetrable mysteries of who God is. He writes uh, later, uh, talking about Charles Spurgeon, who is preaching from the verse, um, let's see, it's John 6.37. I'll read it so that you get the context here. John 6.37, where you have Jesus saying, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now think about that for a second. All the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, the Father generates the movement. But whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Which puts the movement in the individual who's coming. So right there you've got this paradox. Well, Charles Spurgeon said... He had someone came up and said, you, you know, you can't be preaching the gospel of, to whoever will. In other words, you should only be preaching to the non-elect. And he says, if I believe like you do about election, I wouldn't be able to preach. Let me put it this way. If the Lord put a yellow stripe down the back of the elect, I'd go up and down the street lifting up shirt tails to find out who didn't have the stripe, and then I would preach to that person. But God didn't do it that way. He told me to preach the gospel to every creature. Whosoever will may come. Many years ago, I was at a, uh, a theological conference, and there was a, a very strong five-point Calvinist who said, you cannot tell someone Jesus died for them because you don't know that. I went, what? In other words, he was saying, you don't know who is the elect and who aren't, so don't preach to any of them. Don't evangelize. That's up to God. And it was like the whole room, you know, 90% of the room was going, yeah! The other 10% of us were going, what? That doesn't make sense. Well, that's why this issue or this doctrine gets messy and my little can of worms that I forgot to bring uh, is, is actually very appropriate. Dwight L. Moody put it this way, the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever won'ts. 
Fairly simple. Another preacher put it this way. You begin at the wrong end if you first argue about election. Prove your own conversion, and then you never have to doubt your own election. Ah, That's an interesting way of doing it. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And if you think about Paul, Paul is writing about election and predestination all through Romans. I mean, it's, it, it, it's like the fast food joints along the freeway. They're everywhere. And if you pass by one passage, you're going to get another one, another mile down the road. You can't avoid the conversation in a book like Romans. Romans chapter 1 through 11 is this entire theological foundation of what is salvation and justification. And at the end of that, in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, Paul is so enamored by the glory of what he has been writing about that he wrote this, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And then he quotes Isaiah 40 and Job 41. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When we get to these kind of twisty, okay, I don't quite understand that. That's okay. It's great to discuss it, but don't split the church over it. And that, I believe, is one of the themes we find here in Colossians. Because remember, his audience is the church. He identifies his audience saying, you, you're God's chosen ones. Oh, and by the way, you are holy. And holy means to be separate. You're separated out. Well, that's chosen to be separated out. And beloved. And that Greek word is the verb form of the noun agape. To be loved. To love. The love of God. The love that God showed on the cross. The love that is unconditional. The love that surpasses understanding. We are elect, set apart, and loved. Therefore, you see, you have to set this foundation. Often when we read this passage, we skip right over that. And we get to the ethics that are discussed. But if you don't have the foundation of who he is talking to and the definition of what it means to be a believer, the rest of it, it's just a nice exercise in morality. Therefore, put on. 
And as you asked, that put on means to literally put it on like a suit of clothes. But last week, when I was talking about the put off and the put on, I wanted, I'm gonna repeat what I said then. It says it's more than just putting on a comfortable sweater or going into your closet going, I don't have the right kind of long sleeve shirt today, so I'm gonna go buy a new one. It's more, it's not just a simple wardrobe selection. To take off means to remove the clothing, remove the skin, remove the sinews and the muscles, that all you are left is your skeletal shell, as I put it last week, showing your blackened heart. And then God reaches in and puts in a new one. And then he builds the sinews and the muscles and the skins and the clothing is what is put on as a new creature. A new person who thinks everything differently than you did before. The vices of verses 5 to 11 is the old one. The virtues of 12 to 17 are when now put on this this is what my chosen people do and live and wear. And when you think about clothing, just to take the metaphor, it's what other people see. I can look at each one of you, and you made a, a wardrobe choice. Some were good. <laughs> that is such an easy joke. <laughs> oh, man. Now half of you are offended. Um, but you chose that, but this is now what we see. We don't see your heart. We don't see your soul. I can't hear what you're thinking. I don't have magical powers. God does. But as believers in this world, and remember, I read a verse where it says, the world hates you now because I picked you. What are they seeing? Are they seeing a bitter, angry, wrathful, salacious person who does anything they want to get ahead? No. They see someone who has the compassionate heart, the kindness, the humility, the meekness, and the patience. That's what he's trying to say here. But when you go into the text itself, we'll have some fun word studies here. Uh, we need to look at the underlying Greek behind the English. While English is a wonderful language, there is some weaknesses to it. And just even the first phrase here, to have compassionate hearts. Now, okay, I know what that means. Really? Okay. The King James translators didn't. Because what does it say in the King James? You need to have bowels of mercy. <laughs> so imagine how many 
commentaries and sermons I read talking about bowels. Yay. Wow. Well, it's because this and this were synonyms. In the ancient world, in the Greek world in particular, you have this word hearts that we translate is not the word cardia. That is not the word that's here. It is the word bowels. But in Greek, it is a wonderfully easy word to both spell and pronounce. Let's see. Splog. Non. It sounds like bowels in Greek. Splog. <laughs> and this actually means the abdominal viscera or your intestines. Yay, aren't we happy? Didn't you just eat something? Let's <laughs> focus on this. It just reminded me that in college I had to take a class on speech. So we did basic speeches. And we had to do one type of speech was a descriptive speech. So I talked about how cows have three stomachs. And I talked for 15 minutes on cows have three stomachs. And the teacher finally said, I didn't approve this. And we just had lunch. <laughs> this is really gross. <laughs> we all laughed anyway. So, I don't know why I talked. So, anyway, so the idea in the ancient world that the intestines was considered the seat of your emotions or your affections. So when um, Jonathan Edwards wrote his book, Religious Affections, he's actually talking about religious emotions. The word changes over time. To us, affectionist, you know, you know, being nice and sweet and affectionate. Well, that isn't what that meant. And yet, in the last 40 years, the discovery has been is truly the emotions, the bowels, the intestines, the gut, is the center of all emotions and the deeper effect on the physical nature of a person. So when somebody right. says something is gut-wrenching, they mean it. That's where that comes from, that idea that you feel it in your stomach. Someone who is extreme emotional stress will often get an ulcer in their intestines. <laughs> she just raised her hand. <laughs> so, the deep internal caring. Because compassionate and mercy is what is meant here. In Latin, compassionate, let's see if I got this right here, yeah. So the C-O-M part means with, okay, we kind of know that. The passion or pati, P-A-T-I, means to bear or to suffer. So compassion means to suffer with. That's what Paul is writing about. To have these internal, intense love and care for another. Not for yourself, you narcissist. I mean, think about our world. Our world is based on narcissism. 
This is all about me. Look at me. What do I want? What do I want to buy? Where, where should I go? How should I spend my money? All advertisement teaches us to look to our desires first. And Christ is saying just the opposite. Saying, no, 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 yeah, that's fine. If you trust me, I will take care of you. You have compassionate hearts, bowels of mercy for others. Kindness. This is one of the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. You can find it over in Galatians 6.23. Is compassion in action. So you can have the feeling, but uh, what do you do with it? Do you actually express it? Uh, One person wrote, you take the word kind and take the D off and treat them as kin or family. So, how did he write it? He actually wrote it as Kindness. <laughs> Kindness is that, you know, you treat people who are in your family, if you have a reasonably healthy family relationships, you treat them differently because they're blood. They're part of your family. Well, guess what? In the body of Christ, they are. You're bound by the blood of Christ, not the blood of familial family lines but of the body of Christ therefore you reach out and intentionally in word and deed express the compassionate heart that you have been given by God even when it tries your patience because there are some people in the family and I, you can say in the family of God or your own family, who uh, basically they have needs that are unending. And they are always needing the attention and the love and the care. And after a while, you feel worn out by it. I really appreciate caller ID. <laughs> Isn't that a temptation? That call comes in, you go, not today. Nope. I w- no. Just no. I, not today. Because I'll tear their head off. I have no patience with them. Wow. Listen to yourself. And then go read Colossians chapter 3 and feel bad. Because you should. The idea is we reach out and we treat them with kindness, with compassion, in action. And the next one here is humility. Hmm. Now, this is a really long Greek word. So it means I need to erase part of the board. (coughs) And those of you who are listening to this, I'm sorry. You're just going to do your own Greek word studies. Um, But I will spell it out so you can see it. So the word humility here is T A. P-E-I-N-O-P-H-R-O-S-U-N-E. Looks like a medication that your doctor has prescribed. Tapino 
prosune. It's actually two words, tapinos and prosune. Tapinos means lowly. And prosune is to think. Remember last week you talked about putting on the mind of Christ? That's the fray of fret. Phrenology, the idea of the study of the skull, the mind, that's the base word here, is the mind, to think. So to think lowly of yourself. That's humility. Uh, the very common way of saying this is to think yourself as lowly, but even better, don't think of yourself at all. you do, you get in your own way. You're unable to express to others because you're thinking about your own thing first. That's humility. Uh, John MacArthur has an interesting comment on this. In secular Greek literature, the adjective tapinos, or lowly, was used exclusively in a derisive way most commonly of a slave. It described what was considered base, common, unfit, and having little value. Thus it's not surprising that the noun, the noun, tapinofrosune, has not been found in any extra-biblical liter Greek literature before the second century. This word was not in the Greek language and used unless it was in a derisive way. It seems, therefore, to have originated in the New Testament where along with its synonyms, it's always a positive connotation. Humility of the mind is the opposite of pride. The, the sin that has always separated fallen men from God, making them, in, in, in effect, their own gods. Humility is also a dominant virtue in the Old Testament. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with humility is wisdom. Proverbs 11.2. And then later, in Proverbs 16, it's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoils with the proud. So the idea of biblical humility has been around for a long time but it was not common in Roman and Greek culture, unless you're talking about the non-human slave who are no, no better than dogs. You could discard them because they had no value. And remember, what was it, 60, 65% of the entire population was slaves? They're everywhere, every relatively uh, successful household had at least one. And it's another example of how God, in his wisdom, took the quote-unquote wisdom of humanity and flipped it upside down. Isn't that amazing? He does that a lot. He does that a lot. And the next word, we have it as meekness. The uh, New American Standard translates it as gentleness. <clears throat> it is also one of the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Galatians 5.23, where it's translated as gentleness. 
This is the Greek word prautes, P-R-A-U-T-E-S. Means a gentle friendliness or restrained patience. Aristotle defined it as the correct balance between being too angry and never angry at all. So that he called it the mean, the M-E-A-N, the balance between the two in a mathematical formula. Related to that is patience. Again, another one of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5.23. Okay, now we get to do another little Greek fun. It's interesting, I went back to some of my notes when I taught any fruit of the spirit. Um, I feel like it's a repeat, but it, when I taught this, each week was a different one of the fruit we spent all six, all six weeks on. This particular one is, a, is unusual because it has some Hebrew connotations. The Greek word for patience is M-A-K-R-O, makrothumia. So you can already hear how I pronounced it as it's a combination of two words. The makros means to be far off or distance, distant I should say. And the thumos means temper. So it's put your temper far off, slow to anger. Now where this gets really interesting is in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, they would take the Hebrew and in the Septuagint, they translated it into Greek. And they use the word makrothumia, or the Hebrew word, and I have a Hebrew teacher in the room, so you get to correct my both my spelling and pronunciation. Thank you. Um, Eric, E-R-E-K-H, <clears throat> accent mark, A-P-P-Y, A-P-P-A, Y-I-M. Eric Apayim. Is that correct? Very good. I did it right. Yay! <laughs> That's the only word I will pronounce correctly this week. Um, this means long of nose. <laughs> now think of the metaphor. If you are going to have patience, you can breathe in. If you're angry, you breathe in and your nostrils flare and you hold it in. So they're saying to be long of nose is to be patient. And every time you find the phrase, that God, 14 times where God was slow to anger? Yes? To be angry in the Old Testament is to have your nose get hot. Uh, very good. So your nose is hot means you're angry. So if you have long of nose, you're letting it cool down. 
and God was slow to anger, makrothumia, same word we have here. So you see the Old Testament connection. Those who were Hebrew, Jewish, who had any sense of their understanding of the Old Testament knew this. They might not even know their Hebrew. They might only know the Greek Old Testament. And they know their Greek. And they know the connection. So they see this and go, oh, okay. So I need to be patient. Long of nose. Now, some of them are born that way, so it's perfect. <laughs> I don't have to attempt to it, I just live it. Anyway, yeah, yeah I don't express it well, but I do have that. Um, see, this issue when you think that somebody's angry, like almost like in a cartoon, they're like, you know, they're, 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 they're in that kind of facial. Yep, that's right. That's right. It's a, very picturesque. <laughs> and yet, you think about these you know, virtues, they are the contrast to what we saw in the text. It talks about anger and wrath. What else we have here? Um, malice, slander, obscene talk. And here we are talking about patience, kindness, gentleness. Old man, new man. You're completely different. And then verse 13 says you're bearing with one another. Well, that phrase, bearing with, means in the classical Greek usage, means we're truce. So you've had a truce. There's no conflict anymore. You're bearing with them. Now, before I go too much further in this verse, <clears throat> this verse can be misunderstood because think about the context of bearing with one another and if anyone has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must also forgive didn't he just go after the false teachers so how do you compare this do you just you know false teacher rises up and you go well you know it's Charlie well, let's just you know, leave it alone Let's not rock the boat. And next thing you know, Charlie has five followers, then 10, then 35, and has a Sunday school class, and is teaching heresy. When there is untruth being spoken, you must stand up against it. You can still love someone, but you love enough to care that they are being put on the right path to truth. <clears throat> I know I keep reading so much about our cultural challenges, especially how the negative elements of the world's morality and thinking is creeping into the church. I mean, there's a, uh, apparently a recent funeral was held in a New York church for a transgender prostitute. And it was done by the priest, and they celebrated Saint, whatever the person's name was, in the church. And you're kind of going, wait, what? And they have language. I've read the, the, the pieces about it. 
about how they're loving and they care and all, you know, they, they welcome everybody. Now there's a difference. I'm going to stand here and make it, you know, we could have this discussion later. But there's a difference between loving and affirming. You can love someone. But if you say, it's okay, go ahead and live in sin and go to hell, it's fine. I love you that much. Now, loving means to confront the error. And if their reaction is to dismiss you, then you have to say, well, I will continue to love you. I will continue to reach out to you. But when you talk to me, you're going to know where I stand on this. Because it's biblical. We need to walk these now fine lines because our culture around us has begun to blur them. Right? So let's not misinterpret verse 13 as make it a anything goes, bearing with one another. It's a situation of when there is conflict and complaint and relationship breaking then you probably need to get it taken care of, especially in the body of Christ. If someone were to come out from outside the church and walk into yours, um, let's put it this way. In 1992, when Lisa and I first came to Camelback Bible Church, we had been needing to find a new congregation and you know, I'd done the typical male thing. I had taken a, uh, a compass and drew a circle around our home. You know, this is as far as I'm willing to drive. And Camelback was not inside that circle. So we started visiting. And remember, I had been working in the Christian bookstore business. And I knew every church in this valley. All of them. Because they were customers of ours. And the, the reputation of Camelback, it was broke and bickering. Those of you who were there back then, you, you're all nodding your heads. That was the reputation of this church in the valley to someone who saw how they operated. But we visited a bunch of churches inside that circle and we heard some interesting sermons uh, in some of these places. I was like, whoa, that was, wow. Nope, we're not going to go back there. Um, and then I had heard that there had been a revival at Camelback through a friend. Not really. And so we came and that's where we, we knew God had brought us here. Things had changed. But a broken bickering church should not be on the sign in front of the church building. You're not going to bring people in. That's not a bearing with one another. If one has complaint, and there that word complaint, translated in the King James is the word quarrel. The Greek word is M-O-M-P-H-E, momphe. And it's the only place in the entire New Testament that it's used. So there's been some question exactly what it meant. In classical Greek form, it means to find fault or dissatisfaction with someone. But if you have complaint against another, 
forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. The word forgive? Yeah, another Greek word for you here. You're getting a wonderful Greek lesson today. I don't normally go this far, but it, it helps in this passage. The Greek word for forgiveness is C-A-R-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Charizomai. The root word? Charis. Which means grace. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is grace. To give grace is charisma. One fellow put it really powerfully, and I was wondering if we would be doing it again in the service today, and we did. Let's see. It's not on the wall here, but I'll just imagine you, you can say it with me as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and, oh, wait, and forgive. Forgive those who have sinned against you and forgive my sins. You prayed that this morning. Did you mean it? Or did you just read it because it was in the bullet? Or because we were all saying it together? There was a sermon. One guy had made this his powerful point because he was talking about forgiveness. In that congregation, you had to imagine something was going on. Because when you're reading this going, he's really kind of... And he said, we just said this together. Brother against brother, brother against sister, sister against sister. What's going on here? And we're praying this? You're, you're not believing it. And if you're not doing it, don't pray it. Then you're lying to yourself and you're lying to God. Thanks so much for that guilt trip. Um, but he's making a point, isn't he? Forgive each other, and then there's a standard of measure for the nature of your forgiveness. As the Lord has forgiven you. Well, that's easy. Um, let's see. That standard of measure is completely, readily, freely and unconditionally and on top of that in Colossians chapter 2 he had just written this and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God has made alive together with him having charizomai having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the re record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and nailed it to the cross. And then a chapter later, he says, oh, and the, 
as the Lord forgives you, you need to forgive each other. Again, because we slow down and we take out passages, we forget that he's just said that. That's really powerful. And the connection is unavoidable. We forgive each other completely, readily, freely, and unconditionally. When missionaries in northern Alaska were translating the Bible into the language of the Eskimo, they discovered they didn't have a word in the language for forgiveness. And after much patient listening, they discovered a word that means not being able to think about it anymore. And that's the word they used in the Eskimo translation whenever they came to the word forgiveness. The word was used throughout to represent it because God's promise to repentant sinners is, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Dwight L. Moody, in one of his sermons, he pictured the Lord saying to Peter, Peter, go find the man who put the crown of thorns in my head and tell him that I love him. Tell him he can have a crown in my kingdom, one without a thorn. And Peter, go find the man who spat in my face and preached the gospel to him and tell him that I forgive and that I die to save him. And also, find the man who thrusts the spear into my side and tell him there's a quicker way to my heart. Wow. In Jewish traditions, there is something called Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year for the, uh, other than Passover, uh, for the Jewish holiday. I did not know this until I was digging into this. Do you know about Arab Yom Kippur? the day before? I didn't. The day before, it represents a person's last opportunity to seek forgiveness from other people before Yom Kippur begins. Because in Jewish thought, you must seek forgiveness from other people before you can seek the forgiveness of God. And so they spend the day prior making amends. At least that's the idea. And it's called Erev, E-R-E-V, Yom Kippur. According to the Talmud, Yom Kippur does not atone for sins between a person and his fellow unless he has appeased his fellow. The Talmud records no less than 14 stories attesting to the importance of the day for repairing relationships with one's spouses, parents, children, co-workers, the poor, and other individuals. I had no idea. Hmm. Don't we have something similar to that when we take the Lord's Supper? Very often the pastor will say, if you have conflict or if you have unforgiveness in your heart, don't take this. You're not prepared. That's where this would be coming from. This idea of God's forgiveness, it's, not con- it's unconditional, but if your heart is wrong, it's going to block your relationship with God. 
And that's what he's trying to say. And then he says, above all else, put on love. Agape, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Like a belt. You cinch it tight. And if you remember, in the whole armor of God, the first item that is put on is the belt of truth. That creates the foundation upon which all the armor can sit properly. If you don't have the belt, well, you know, the breastplate of righteousness might not protect, it might not handle well, the sword, there's no place to hook the sword. There's all these elements to that, and he's saying love is the thing that binds. It pulls it all together in perfect, the Greek word teleos, which is the name of our adult Bible study program here. The perfect, complete. And then one last piece, and this is where I'll stop today, is verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body. And I wrote down, it says, peace of Christ. What is that? I mean, it sounds like a, um, I don't know, a cliche. You know, peace of Christ. Yeah, whatever. Now I can eat. I mean, it, it, but what is he talking about? It's not the conclusion to this passage, but it's certainly a critical piece of this passage. So I was reading in um, <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon's sermon on this passage, delivered in 1882. And it caused me to dig around a little bit to some of the things that he went through. So you're going to find it here. There it is. And before I get to that sermon, approximately 30 years earlier, before his first wedding anniversary, he was 22 years old, preaching at the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. And they were... He was preaching in this place. It was their temporary quarters until the New York, the Metropolitan Tabernacle was being built. They were moving from New York Park Street to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. But they needed to have another place. And this place was big. 10,000 people showed up for the Sunday morning service. All right. Our sanctuary, if you really press everybody together, holds what? 900? Maybe, depending on how wide people are. I mean, you know, there's, you, can't, you can't number the seats, so you cram it all in, and there have been some Christmas services in the back where you have chairs along the back rows, on the aisles, the place is a fire hazard. And of course, then we all light candles, perfect. Anyway, uh, but remember, imagine a room 10 times the size of our sanctuary and there's no microphone and Charles Spurgeon preaches and everybody can hear him well remember he's 22 years old he's been in ministry already as a senior pastor for three years they had one month old twins at home his wife was home taking care of them 
And he was preaching in this music hall for the first time. And right after the service began, mischief makers in the crowd cried, fire. And 10,000 people ran for the exits. Seven people were trampled to death in front of Charles Spurgeon, and 30 more were seriously injured in the aftermath. Spurgeon himself passed out on the stage when he saw the tragedy unfolding in front of him. People thought he had died. The rest of his life, they say in some of his writings and some of the depression that he would go through, that this formed some really deep emotional trauma to watch that happen under him. So, 30 years later, he comes to this passage, Colossians 3.15. If you want to read the sermon, it's called That Horrible East Wind. It's sermon number 1693. <laughs> Just that number alone boggles my mind, but anyway. This is what he writes. I don't know how it is, but during the last two or three days, I've been called to sympathize with an amount of sorrow such as I have seldom met with before in so short a space of time. One messenger of misery has followed on the heels of another, each one with heavy tidings. Nor is that all, for I've also been perplexed with a large amount of sinning, quarreling, and fault-finding. People are murmuring, grumbling, fretting, and fighting on all sides. So much that this has tried me that I feel a little fitted to, I feel little fitted to act as a comforter, for I need comfort myself. I've endeavored to cheer others until I have drunk their cup of sorrow and put my own mouth out of taste. I've tried to make peace for others till I am half afraid of losing my own. I've answered the people's grumblings till I'm tempted to have a growl or two of my own. Perhaps I may relieve my own mind by the sermon that I hope to deliver. Wow. And then he preaches for an hour on the peace of Christ. Peace. He calls it the horrible east wind. He said troubles and east winds can come to the servants of God. Those east winds are sent to us to do good. For perhaps if we get our backs against a protecting wall and for sit forever in the sunshine with no east wind to interfere with us, we would go to sleep. And we might come to love this world so well that we loathe to leave it. It'd be a horrible thing for any one of us if the south wind would softly breathe on our check, on our cheek and whisper gently in our ear and say, soul, take ease. You have found a place of freedom from trials and therefore eat, drink, and be merry. When I turn over in my mind the events of the last few days, I do not suppose there is more discord or content, discontent in the world now than any other time. But it happens that a number of black lines have found their center in my person and my thoughts have had to travel out upon all directions. 
and all the more when the wind is in the east. And he turns to Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Peace is the opposite of division or dissension. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. John 14, 27. And the author of this peace? It's the peace of who? Of Christ. We see other places. The peace of God. 21 times so far in Colossians, Paul has mentioned Christ as the head as the, well, I'll just read it. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And then chapter 3, verses 11, Christ is all and in all. This is no simplistic, just let it go, or a fatalistic, stoic approach, and you just knuckle through it. This is placing our trust in the one who rules it all, because it says, let the peace of Christ rule and we forget that word in this passage. The peace of Christ, we can now, we've identified it, but what does it do? It rules. Tough times, that's just where I just started writing. Tough times are going to happen. <laughs> and I got a little snarky. I said, those lovely bowels we talked about earlier, they might decide to have a party. But you might have a loved one who's going through an awful trial that you cannot fix. A friend may betray you. You may be disrespected in a work situation. I'm speaking of my own foibles here. <clears throat> the church may disappoint you with a decision. But remember, you are chosen by God. You are elect, holy, and beloved. And His peace is yours. His peace is ours. And it rules everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. The uh, word is so deep and wide and yet extremely applicable we forget this is why we need to remember you are all in all let, a, let your peace rule in our lives
And all that comes to us, we give you the glory, no matter what it is. In Jesus' name, amen.